It's Aspen Ideas To Go, the podcast that brings you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events presented by the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. I was recently traveling in the highlands of New Guinea. Helen Fisher, Chief Scientific Advisor for Match.com, best-selling author and senior research fellow at the Kinsey Institute. And I ran into a guy who had three wives. So I said to him, uh, how many wives would you like to have? And there was this long pause, and uh, I wondered to myself, was he going to say five? Uh, was he going to say ten? Uh, was he going to say twenty-five? And he leaned toward me and he said, none. And <laughs> She says 86% of world cultures permit a man to have several wives, but only a small percentage of men choose that path and marry multiple women. A lot of wives can be a toothache. Uh, they can uh, fight among each other. Uh, uh, sometimes they will even poison each other's children. Uh, You've got to have a lot of cows, a lot of goats, uh, a lot of land, a lot of money uh, to build a harem. We are basically a pair-bonding species. Fisher spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival about how long-term coupling has a bright future. She spent her career studying couples and romantic behavior. And in her book, Anatomy of Love, A Natural History of Mating, Marriage, and Why We Stray, she traces the history of family life and explains what science tells us about how to make and keep a happy partnership. Recently, she's been trying to figure out why human beings fall in love and form pair bonds when the odds are against them. 97% of mammals do not pair up to raise their young. To study love scientifically, she and her colleagues put 100 people in brain scanners. Some were newly in love, others had just experienced a breakup, and others were in love long-term. Here is her talk at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Around the world, people love. They sing for love, they dance for love. We have operas, plays, poems, ballets, uh, sitcoms, uh, etc. about love. Uh, people pine for love, they live for love, they kill for love, and they die for love. It's one of the most powerful brain systems the human animal has ever evolved. So I began to study it. Uh, we've certainly um, evolved it. And the first thing I needed to prove is that this was universal. So I've done several studies. And as it turns out, there's no gender difference. As a matter of fact, men uh, are more romantic than women are. They fall in love faster. Uh, they fall in love more often. When a man uh, does fall in love, he wants to introduce the woman to friends and family sooner. Men want to move in sooner. Men have more intimate conversations with their wives uh, than uh, women do with their husbands, because women have their uh, intimate conversations with their girlfriends. Um, and in, in fact, men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So not terribly romantic, but uh, indeed, um, it can occur at any age. Uh, the youngest person I ever met that was in love was two and a half. Uh, every single time a particular little girl would come over to his house, he'd sit right next to her and just stroke her hair. And his mother said that, uh, we're not talking about the sex drive, it's a different brain system. Uh, the brain system for romantic love um, is like the fear system. You can be scared at three and a half, two and a half. You can be scared at 92. I mean, <laughs> you can be in love at 92 and a half. It's a very specific brain system. Other people have put uh, uh, gays and lesbians into the brain scanner. We didn't uh, because we were the first in the world to do it and we were afraid that uh, our academic peers would jump all over us. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, when it comes to the brain circuitry for a romantic love, I'm not talking about who you fall in love with. I'm talking about how you feel when you love. And it is no different at all in gays and straights. Uh, these are some of the basic uh, characteristics of romantic love. 
uh, the first thing that happens when you fall in love is somebody takes on what I call special meaning. Everything about them becomes special. Their car is different from every other car in the parking lot. Their book bag is different from every other book bag at this conference. Uh, everything about them becomes special. You focus your attention on them. Uh, you know, before I put people in the brain scanner, I would ask them, what do you not like about this person? And they could list what they didn't like, but they would sweep that aside and just focus, just focus on what they did, uh, did like. Uh, intense energy, uh, euphoria, you can uh, walk all night and talk till dawn, uh, a terrible despair when you don't get an email, and elation when you do, real bodily reactions, a pounding heart, a dry mouth, a wobbly knees. What a pain in the neck, you know, the very, when you really want to impress somebody and you can barely get the sentence out in order to do it. Uh, it's as if we, you know, uh, evolution sort of overdone it here, you know. Um, uh, emotional dependence, uh, as uh, one man said to me, he said, anything she liked, I liked. You know, you, uh, uh, and physical dependence, you wait for the phone call, you wait for the email. Um, uh, real separation anxiety, something that I call, uh, I made up the term frustration attraction. As uh, Terence uh, said, the ancient uh, Roman poet, he said, uh, uh, the less my hope, the hotter my love. And indeed, uh, that's exactly, I know the brain circuitry of when you don't, when you can't get something, you just try harder. Uh, um, real possessiveness, uh, I call, it's the academic term called mate guarding. Uh, I think this one particular thing is um, the cause of the huge amount of crimes of passion uh, all over the world today, simply guarding that mate. Um, but the main characteristics of romantic love are obsessive thinking. There's somebody camping in your head. You can't get them out. You wake up in the morning thinking about them. You go to bed thinking about them. In fact, I would ask these people, you know, uh, uh, you know, how often do you think about your sweetheart? Because I actually wouldn't put them in the machine unless they were obsessed. That's a basic characteristic. If you're not obsessed, you're not in the standard, you know, concept of being madly in love. Um, craving for emotional union. Sure, you'd like to sleep with them, no question, but what you really want them to do is to call, to write, uh, to invite you out, and to uh, tell you that they love you. Uh, and of all of them, the motivation to win this partner, what people will do when they are in love is absolutely astonishing. And as Stendhal once said, it's involuntary. He said, love is like a fever. It comes and goes quite independently of the will. So I looked at all of these characteristics. I collected a lot of data. I looked at the last 40 years of psychological literature. I read a great deal of poetry. Um, you know, some anthropologists uh, uh, study arrowheads or potsherds, and I think that world poetry is a, uh, a wonderful artifact of the human mind. And in fact, all the poetry all over the world says basically the same thing. You know, please email me. Uh, please write. <laughs> the oldest Sumerian uh, poems from almost uh, uh, 4,000 years ago are saying the same thing. So um, I looked at all these characteristics and I figured, okay, everything here in red is linked with the dopamine system in the brain. Uh, this uh, obsessive thinking is linked with low activity in the serotonin system. Uh, bodily reactions are linked with the norepinephrine system and the mate guarding is probably linked with the vasopressin system. So I figured, okay, at the very least, I might find activity in the dopamine system 
uh, in the brain. So I began to put people uh, in the brain scanners. This was my hypothesis. What the basic uh, thing we did was, I, I, I interviewed them at length to make sure they were really in love. These machines are expensive, it's very time consuming. And um, they looked at a photograph of their sweetheart, and in the machine, they're lying there, they look for 30 seconds at a photograph of their sweetheart, and 30 seconds at a neutral photograph of somebody who called forth no positive or negative responses. The problem with that is when you're madly in love with somebody, you can't stop thinking about them. So between the positive and the neutral, I had to do a distraction task. And so I chose the task that we would cast on the screen a large number, like 8,421. And they would have to, for 30 seconds, look at that number and count backwards in increments of seven. And nobody does it well. I didn't even care if they got it right, but it drives all the blood to little brain regions linked with A, anxiety really, and B, uh, um, uh, quantitative thinking. So that way I had my clean scans of when you're madly in love and when you're uh, in a neutral state. You put them on top of each other, cancel out what, you, what they have in common, and you have the brain in love. I think that romantic love is one of uh, three basic brain systems that evolved from mating and reproduction. Sex drive being one, linked with the testosterone system, in both men and women. Romantic love, the one I study, linked with the dopamine system, and low activity in the serotonin system, giving you that craving. And the third brain system of attachment. Other scientists have, have found that that brain system is associated with the different uh, chemical systems. And I think that these three basic brain systems um, operate in all kinds of fantastical ways, really, to create all the forms of love um, that we feel uh, today. But I think they evolve for reproductive purposes. I think the sex drive evolved to get you out there looking for a whole range of partners. But you can have sex with somebody you're not in love with. Um, I think that romantic love evolved to enable to focus your mating energy on just one person at a time. And I think that attachment, that third brain system, evolved to enable you to tolerate this human being at least long enough uh, to um, uh, reproduce and send your DNA on into tomorrow. They operate in very uh, interesting ways. They often operate so that, uh, I mean, for example, when you fall madly in love with somebody, all of a sudden everything about them becomes sexy. Just the way he gets into his car, the way she curls her hair, everything becomes sexy. And it's probably because as you're driving up the dopamine system in the brain, you're triggering the testosterone system. But can the reverse be true? Can you have sex with somebody and then fall in love with them? Well, not all the time. Uh, most liberated adults have not fall in love with all of the people that they had sex with, but it can happen. And it can happen because any stimulation of the genitals uh, drives up the dopamine system and can push you over the threshold into falling in love. And in fact, you know, we're always wondering why all these hookups, as if this is craziness. But bottom line is there's two ways to get the boy or get the girl. Either you spend months talking about their future plans or you get them in bed tonight and try and trigger these uh, brain systems. And so it's a sort of a Darwinian mechanism uh, for speeding up the process of, of, uh, of mating. Um, having sex with somebody can also drive up the attachment system because with orgasm there's a real flood of oxytocin and vasopressin. So the bottom line is 
Casual sex is not casual. Unless you're so drunk that you can't remember it, it's not casual. All kinds of things uh, happen in the brain. And as one sideliner, I, I'm in the process of trying to prove this right now, but you know, uh, there's a huge number of people taking these SSRIs, uh, Prozac, Paxil, Lexapro, et cetera. I'm 100% for it if you need these drugs, but about 73% of people, psychiatrists say, actually do not need them. And as you take these drugs, you're driving up the serotonin system and you are reducing the dopamine system. Uh, numbing the brain, uh, jeopardizing your ability to fall in love or stay in love. Anyway, these brain systems are not always uh, well connected. Uh, you know, you can lie in bed at night and feel deep attachment to one person and then swing into feelings of wild romantic love for somebody else and then swing into feelings of the sex drive uh, just uh, for somebody in the office you don't even know. It's as if there's a committee meeting going on in your head as you're, as you're finding this uh, swinging from one brain system to another. And the problem, of course, of that is it's you're capable of really loving more than one person at a time, feeling deep romance for one and uh, deep attachment for another, leaving the human animal uh, with a tremendous ability to fall in love and form a pair bond and rear our children as a team and also a tendency, not everybody's adulterers, for adultery, divorce, and remarriage. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. In the next segment, love and relationship scientist Helen Fisher addresses whether technology is changing romantic love. She pulls up images of brain scans for the audience at the Ideas Festival. Even though you can't see them, she describes what she sees, and it's fascinating. Here's Fisher. Uh, this is where the sex, uh, sex drive lies in the, in the hypothalamus, way at the bottom of the brain, uh, way below the cortex, way below the limbic system uh, where your emotions are, in basic brain region linked with drive. And right next to it uh, is the um, brain region linked with uh, uh, deep feelings of romantic love. Once again, way in the bottom of the brain. Here's this whole brain system for basic survival mechanisms. Romantic love lies there, and so does thirst and hunger. And you know, people will say today, oh, technology is changing love. It's never going to change love. It's going to change how we court, but it'll never change how we love. In fact, as a little aside, I've talked a lot about this at this conference. If people think that technology is changing love. They might consider the late 1940s and, and early 1950s when the automobile became uh, generally available. At that point, we had a rolling bedroom, for God's sakes. I mean, that's a whole lot more powerful than swiping left or right on Tinder. So uh, I uh, keep on trying to tell the world that uh, we started to evolve these brain systems millions of years ago, and if we survive as a species, we will still be loving a million years from now. Here's attachment, it's a little bit higher uh, than romantic love, but once again, way below our thinking uh, parts of the brain. So it occurred to me that this was a drive, that this was a mating drive. I'd always thought that romantic love was, you know, a series of emotions, which it is, and certainly thought processes, but it's basically a drive. It comes from part of the brain for wanting, for craving, for obsession, for focus, for motivation, and for drive. In fact, 
it evolved so that we were driven to look for uh, life's greatest prize, uh, which is a mating partner. It's much stronger than the sex drive. Uh, you know, if you ask somebody to go to bed with you and they say, no, thank you, you don't kill yourself or somebody else. But when it comes to romantic love, uh, it's a, and in fact, uh, the most interesting thing is that there's no facial expression. You know, you can look at somebody and know whether they're mad, angry, uh, sad, happy. You can't look at somebody and know whether they're hungry or thirsty. And you can't look at somebody and know whether they're in love. It's a basic human drive that evolved millions of years ago. So um, I then began to think to myself, well, you know, who cares about this? I mean, it's nice intellectually to know that, uh, about romantic love. But what about rejection in love? I mean, that's when somebody turns into being a pest, you know, not only difficult for themselves, but for everybody around them. So I decided what I would do is um, put people who had just been dumped uh, into the uh, uh, brain scanner. Not hard to find people who've been dumped. Uh, you know, we, nobody gets out of love alive. And, uh, so I was able to, it was hard actually to do it. I'm not a psychologist, I'm an anthropologist. And, and people are a real mess when they've been dumped, uh, as I think we all know. I got them into the machine, and uh, I, this is what I was looking for. I was looking for activity in a brain region, nucleus accumbens, linked with addiction. And it is an addiction. It's, I think, a profound addiction. A perfectly wonderful addiction when you are happily in love and a perfectly uh, horrible addiction uh, when you've been rejected in love. So these were the, act where I found activity. I found that, you know, when you've been dumped, you don't stop loving the person. Uh, we found activity in the same brain region linked with romantic love, the same brain region linked with attachment, three brain regions linked with addiction, and a brain region linked with physical pain, um, as well as mental pain. And in fact, I've been, I started going out with a man uh, in, uh, I don't know, some time ago, and a few, some months ago, and he dumped me. And, um, and uh, my brain scanning partner said to me, Helen, take some aspirin. So I did take some aspirin, it was a little bit better, uh, but uh, he came back fortunately. Uh, but the bottom line is they've now shown that actually Advil and aspirin can help when you've been rejected in love because it hits the pain centers. <laughs> so I uh, hope you don't have to go there, but bottom line is that's the point. Uh, all animals have an attraction system. There's not an animal on this planet that will have sex with anything that comes along. Antlers too small, colors not quite right, tail not too fluffy, they won't do it. They all have an attraction system in the brain and it runs through the same dopamine system that humans do. They're not making poetry about it or movies or plays or operas or, or ballets, but they have that attraction system. And you can, we've, we've found that, not ourselves, but other scientists in several animals. But anyway, you can see that they can be very actually quite touching. They're doing the um, French kiss. Uh, we know that because they've come up to anthropologists and, and done it. Um, but they don't form pair bonds. Our close relatives do not form pair bonds. Human beings do. So my first thing was to try to prove why it is that we bother to pair up at all. You know, I constantly on TV and that people ask me why we're adulterers. And I feel like saying, that's not the news. The news is that we bother to pair up at all. And we do it with incredible uh, regularity. 
I think Samuel Johnson once called remarriage the triumph of hope over experience. And indeed, <laughs> that's exactly what we do. Um, our closest relatives lived in the trees. Uh, females did not need a mate to uh, help them, uh, to help protect them. Uh, they carried the infant on, the back, on their back so they could feed themselves. They did not need a long-term partner to help them rear their young. Trees began to disappear. Our ancestors were forced down to the ground. They began to stand up on two feet instead of four. And at this point, I think it became very difficult to carry a baby in one arm and sticks and stones in your other arm and feed and protect themselves. And it became essential to females. They went over what I call a monogamy threshold. They had to begin to form a pair bond uh, to help survive. And I don't see how a male could protect a harem of females and so we evolved, uh, developed the brain circuitry that uh, would become human romantic love and deep feelings of, of attachment to a partner. Uh, in my new book, uh, Anatomy of Love, uh, uh, this is the central picture of it. Uh, he's a very well-known um, painter of early man, and, and I, I wanted a picture drawn by him. These are some 4.4 million year old people uh, based really on the skulls, as close as we're probably ever going to get to what these people really looked like. And hence, carried to us, every single person in the room is the end product of an awful lot of people in the past who did an awful lot of sex in order for us to get here. So uh, and certainly here we are. Adultery is um, something I don't generally talk about, but um, I know that they wanted me to. I've looked at adultery in, uh, <laughs> in 42 cultures. Uh, it happens everywhere in the world, uh, even in places where you can get your head chopped off for it. Uh, and so there's got to be some Darwinian evolutionary purposes for this. There's a lot of cultural reasons that people will say that they are adulterous, but what's interesting is there's some bio, we're beginning to know some biology um, as well. Uh, and it comes from three pieces of data. There's a gene in the vasopressin system um, that, it's a wonderful study uh, from a guy called Wallum, W-A-L-U-M, uh, 2008, and he studied uh, 552 men uh, in Sweden. And he found that those people who had, you can either have no copies of the gene, one copy of the gene, or two copies of the gene. Men with two copies of the gene had the most unstable marriages. He wasn't studying adultery, but they had the most unstable marriages. Men with one copy of the gene had more stable marriages, and men with no copies of the gene had the most stable marriages. So this is the beginning of learning about some of the biological basis of the predisposition uh, for adultery. Uh, another thing is MHC compatibility. It's in the, it's in the um, immune system. And in fact, uh, people who have a certain genes in this part of the immune system are uh, particularly attracted to people who do not have those genes. Uh, who are complementary. And in fact, if they marry somebody who has the same set of genes in this brain system, uh, these women are much more likely to be adulterous. And they're much more likely to be adulterous in the middle of their menstrual cycle uh, when they're most likely to have a baby. So that's the second piece of data. The third piece of data is what I mentioned about these three brain systems. The fact that you can be madly in love with one person and deeply attached to another. 
So what would be the point of, of adultery? I mean, I think it is probably um, uh, uh, millions of years ago, uh, you form a pair bond, uh, have two babies, uh, but you suddenly go hunting over the hill and you meet somebody else and you have sex with them and you, you end up having two more babies. If you're a man, you will have doubled the amount of DNA you would have spread into tomorrow. Those people who were adulterous tended to have more children, passing on whatever it is in the brain to uh, lead to adultery in men. I have all my colleagues who say, well, men are much more adulterous than women. Uh, there's no point for female adultery. They can't have a new baby every single time they sleep around. The first thing I feel like saying to them is, who do you think all those men are sleeping with? Number one. <laughs> and I think there's a great many reasons for female adultery. Uh, an insurance policy, he, he gets gored by a lion or eaten by a lion, whatever. Uh, you got somebody to step in. Uh, you might have another baby. Uh, by an adulterous relationship. And certainly if you travel from one place to another doing your gathering of vegetables a million years ago, you got people in other places who will give you meat, who will give you protection, etc. So the bottom line is that um, we've evolved what I call a dual human reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to fall in love, pair up, and rear our children as a team, and also a predisposition to be adultery. This is not to say that all people are adulterous. We've got a big cerebral cortex. We make decisions with our lives. What's astonishing is that there's really any adultery at all, that it is so prevalent in the world. I've also studied divorce uh, for many, many years. I've looked at divorce in 80 societies, and I've found um, a, a pattern of human divorce. Now, there's all kinds of cultural reasons that people divorce, but I found a biological one. Millions of years ago, uh, what I did in my studies is I found that people are most likely to divorce in their middle to late 20s and early 30s, in the middle of their reproductive years. Why aren't they divorcing after their children leave for college? Why are they divorcing in the middle of their reproductive years? Uh, often with one child and often during the fourth year of marriage, and it finally occurred to me, four years is the pattern of human birth spacing. We really were not built, we were really built to have a child every four years, so that the first child is out of infancy by the time the second one is born. Much easier on the mother, much easier on the community, uh, and much easier physiologically. So my hypothesis was, since people uh, tend to divorce, if they're gonna divorce, not everybody divorces, uh, they're going to do it around the fourth year of marriage, and that this is an ancient reproductive um, program, really, I guess, uh, pattern um, that evolved millions of years ago, ago to stay together at least long enough to raise a single baby together as a team. Now, babies aren't uh, um, ready to be uh, on their own after four years, but in a hunting and gathering group, you know, if uh, the child is now out of infancy, it can be taken care of by a seven-year-old and a 15-year-old and aunts and uncles and cousins. So in our past, actually, divorce was probably quite common. Serial pair bonding, a series of pair bonds creating more genetic diversity in our lives, leaving the human animal with um, what I call uh, a dual human reproductive strategy, a tremendous drive to pair up 
and rear your children as a team, but also a tendency for divorce and adultery. Now, we're not puppets on a string of DNA. Uh, we, uh, we make all kinds of decisions in our lives, but this is, I think, basic uh, to, the, to the human brain, leaving us, I think, with one great 21st century issue. To what degree do each one of us want commitment and stick with commitment, and to what degree do each one of us want autonomy? I think that's one of the great uh, 21st century issues in the human mind. Scientist Helen Fisher also put older people in brain scanners to see if romantic love can last. Here's what she found. Uh, they all told us they were madly in love. Um, we didn't believe them. Uh, Americans, no, people don't believe it. We put them in the machine, and sure enough, we found activity in exactly the same brain region uh, as among those who had just fallen happily in love. Um, we also found activity in brain regions linked with attachment. This is what we really found. Activity in brain regions linked with romantic love and brain regions linked with attachment. The difference between those who are in love long term and those who've just fallen in love is this. Um, when you've just fallen happily in love, you know, you're anxious. What did I say that for? How come I did that? I should have worn that. What am I doing here? You know, et cetera. Whereas after 21 years of marriage, you're not in that state. And in fact, Brain regions linked with anxiety become less and less active, and brain regions linked with calm and pain suppression become active. Why him? Why her? I wrote a whole book on this. It's also in my book, Anatomy of Love. And this is what Match.com wanted me to say. You know, uh, I, they called me uh, two days before Christmas. Uh, I live in New York, and uh, wanted me to come in two days after Christmas. This was in 2005. Uh, nothing happens in New York two days before Christmas, but they wanted to see me. So I went in, and um, all these people filed in. Uh, I didn't know who they were, whether this was a think tank. As it turned out, it was the CEO on down. And in the middle of the morning, they said, Helen, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? And I said, I don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, we do know that you fall in tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, same general level of good looks, same religious and social values, same reproductive and economic goals. Your childhood definitely plays a role, but you can walk into a room and everybody is from your background and same general level of intelligence and good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So I began to think to myself, Maybe evolution drives us to some people rather than others. You know, people will say, we have chemistry, or we don't have chemistry. And I thought to myself, maybe there's something to that. So I began to look uh, into the brain. There's two parts of personality. There's your culture, everything you grew up to believe and do and say and think. And there's your biology, your temperament your predispositions, and a good 50%, 40 to 60% of who you are uh, comes out of your biology. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm gonna look into the brain and see if there's any traits that, um, that drive us, you know, if there's any patterns in the brain that would drive you to choose one person rather than another. There's an awful lot of, um, of um, traits in the brain and one of them is um, intimacy. 
women tend to get intimacy from face-to-face -face talking. We swivel to we're face-to-face. -face. We do what's called the anchoring gaze, and we talk. Uh, I think that comes from millions of years of holding that baby in front of your face, cajoling it, rec reprimanding it, educating it with words. Words are intimacy to women. Men tend to get intimacy from side by side doing. They can be watching a football game on Sunday afternoon and say nothing for three hours. And they regard this as intimate behavior. Uh, this, of course, is the problem. <laughs> So I began to think to myself, okay, Helen, go into the brain and see if you can't find some basic characteristics uh, that drive you to find one person rather than another. So I went and looked into the brain looking for any trait at all, any trait looking, uh, that was linked with any biological system. For example, if you uh, give L-DOPA uh, to a Parkinson's patient. It drives up the dopamine system in the brain and very regularly they become quite creative. As it turns out, creativity is largely in the dopamine system. Uh, if you take LSD or something, uh, you're, you, you're, you might have a religious experience, um, I'm told, and it's because you're driving up the serotonin system and the serotonin system is, is linked with religiosity. Uh, and so I went through looking at anything I could find, and I found four brain systems that are each one linked with a constellation of personality traits. Now, there's an awful lot of systems in the brain, but most of them keep the uh, eyes blinking or the heart beating. They're not linked with personality traits. These four brain systems are each one of them linked with uh, a constellation, a suite of personality traits. So I uh, call them curious, energetic, cautious, social, norm-conforming, analytical, tough-minded, and pro-social, empathetic. Those are the academic terms because I was working with a, uh, a, um, a dating site. I had to name these people. And so I call them the explorer, uh, the builder, the director, and the ne negotiator. Uh, not great terms, but uh, bottom line, I'm stuck with them. I then made a questionnaire to see to what degree you express the traits in each one of these brain systems. And I put that on several dating sites owned by Match.com, and it's now been taken by 14 million people in 40 countries. And on that, uh, I was able to watch not only how you score in these brain systems, but who you choose uh, to love, to go out with. Um, I've, one thing I do want you to remember is that we are all a combination of all of these. Um, I've never met two people who are exactly alike. I'm an identical twin. Uh, even she and I aren't exactly alike. Uh, we are all unique human beings, but we have personalities, and they are certainly uh, associated, I think, with these brain systems. So um, uh, people who are very expressive of the dopamine system, as I said, tend to be uh, explorers, curious, novelty-seeking, risk-taking. The academic term is sensation-seeking. Uh, they have the most interests. They make the most money. They lose the most money because they can be very reckless. Um, uh, and it's not just, you know, skiing uh, black diamonds. It's people who also want to go to the opera, who read widely, who come to conferences like this one. Um, they're optimistic and enthusiastic. Uh, I actually think that um, 
Obama is uh, that way. Uh, when he was first elected, uh, you know, The Onion, the uh, humor magazine, the, the lead line was, black man given worst job in the world. And indeed, <laughs> I think he is actually still optimistic about it. Uh, I think he's a high dopamine uh, guy. Independent, self-reliant, uh, impulsive, these are the ones that will walk into a bar and buy everybody a drink, uh, uh, mentally flexible, but idea generation is, is uh, totally linked uh, with the dopamine system in the brain. Now there's some downsides of this, they tend to be reckless, uh, they can be manic, uh, they can be opportunistic, and they can be unpredictable. Uh, but these are the main characteristics that come out of your biology. A good example, I think, is Richard Branson. I've always thought rules were made to be broken. Uh, I've always had the urge to live life to its full. Uh, Lang Lang, the pianist, flair, dazzling, charisma, bravado, extremes, ebullient, and Gloria Steinem. Very different people, very different backgrounds, very different interests, very different accomplishments, but the basic same brain biology and they go for people like themselves. My hypothesis was that they would go for their opposite. Somebody would stabilize them, but they go for people like themselves. Curious, energetic, spontaneous people want somebody like themselves. Hi, pillars of society, the builder, the guardian. Um, they observe social norms. They follow the rules. They like the familiar. They'll go to the same place every year to, for the summer. They go to the same restaurant uh, every weekend. Cautious, they're not scared. It's called harm avoidant. Calm, self-controlled. That's why you take Prozac or Paxil to get to drive up the serotonin system and have this happen to you. Um, plans, routines, orderly, concrete. Uh, they can be very literal. They don't actually like theory. And in fact, I'm beginning to talk more and more to business people. These people, they can tolerate a, a hundred uh, PowerPoint slides. After my book on this came out, uh, I um, was in Seattle and I was talking about this and, you know, uh, I could tell that this journalist hated me and, and, of course, the more I realized it, the more flamboyant I got because you get more like yourself and uh, sure enough, the following day, I was right, she, she didn't like me and uh, I realized on the cab going back, I said, Helen, why didn't you just pour the details on her, the Chromebacks Alpha, uh, uh, the, um, uh, all of my analysis? She would have heard me, um, but in fact, uh, I only came to it later. Um, uh, they have more close friends. They, they follow the rules. Religiosity, as I mentioned, is in the serotonin system. The most important one for me, mathematically, is loyalty. One of the questions on the questionnaire was, it's not quite like this, but it's something like, would you rather have interesting friends or loyal friends? Now, we all want interesting friends, and we all want loyal friends, but this type cannot tolerate unloyal friends, and the other three types cannot tolerate uninteresting friends. Mitt Romney, a perfect example. I've read his book, I've followed him in the news, continually, very high serotonin guy. Also a very high uh, testosterone guy. The heavy brow ridges, the high zygomatic arch, the uh, cheekbones, the square jaw and the high thing are all built by uh, testosterone. So he's a guy who's a very high serotonin, but also very high uh, testosterone. Uh, Hu Jintao, the uh, former president of, uh, of China, 
um, that's interesting, there's a gene in the serotonin system linked with social norm conformity. And that gene is most frequent today in China and Japan. Uh, certainly Meg Whitman. Uh, and George Washington. I've really gotten interested in history now. He was the right man in the right place. Uh, modesty is in this system. He could have been uh, uh, the first king, and he chose to build a democracy. And they go for people like themselves. Traditional goes for traditional. Third broad style of thinking, behaving in high testosterone. Uh, the logical, uh, uh, inventive. Uh, rank-oriented, um, emotionally contained. They keep, they keep their emotions to themselves. A friend of mine said to me some time ago, she said, uh, she said you know, Helen, um, I said to my husband, I said, sweetie, you haven't told me that you loved me in a month. And her husband said, well, I said that last month and nothing's changed. So, <laughs> they're decisive, bold, and they, they're the ones that scream and get to the point. Uh, Steve Jobs is a perfect example. Once again, you see the, the facial features of the high testosterone person. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, iron, the iron lady, they didn't, that, that's meaningful. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I think, um, you know, when asked why she was attracted to Bill, she said he wasn't afraid of me. I don't think I'd say that, personally. I, uh, <laughs> and they go for their opposite. Uh, they go for the high uh, estrogen type. Um, negotiators, I call them. Uh, these are the people uh, who see the big picture. And it's because, it's at least in part, because the axons, the highways between the two sides of the brain, hemispheres, are better connected. There's some data that there's got more connections between the front and the back uh, factories as well, giving them this contextual, holistic, long-term view. Uh, imaginative, uh, 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 they can tolerate ambiguity because they can see it a different whole pile of different ways. Um, good linguist, very good with people, uh, uh, good linguistic skills, good people skills, very good at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice. Intuitive, uh, the academic term is theory of mind. They can get into your brain and, and figure out uh, what you're thinking. The most interesting one to me is, of all of them, is the fact that they're trusting. Anthropologists have not really known why it is that trusting could have evolved. If you trust the wrong person, you are really up the creek. But what's interesting is if you trust the right person, um, you uh, save a lot of metabolic energy. And what I find so interesting about it is they're likely to trust the right person because they can see long-term, they can look into people's heads, they can uh, uh, read people's postures and gestures. And what is interesting to me is this is the way a host of, of, of personality traits can evolve together. It began to explain to me how they could evolve together. Uh, they're introspective. Um, Everything has meaning. Just the way he sliced the onion or the, uh, the lemon tonight means you're not having sex tonight. Uh, he says, everything has meaning. You gotta be careful around these people because they're gonna ruminate about it uh, for three weeks. Uh, they seek harmony. Uh, they don't stab you in the back. Uh, they hit, I mean, they don't hit you in the face. They stab you in the back. Uh, they're no nicer than others. Emotionally expressive and what I call diplomatic intelligence. Oprah Winfrey, the only time I had made a bad decision is when I didn't follow my instinct. Awful lot of people would not say that. It's the high estrogen thing. Bill Clinton, whole world knows he can't stop talking. 
his book's over 900 pages. He writes, I think it's important to have a synthesizing mind. That's a high estrogen statement. Uh, he feels everybody's pain. Uh, uh, he's the one that uh, cried at the daughter's wedding. In fact, you know, we're all wondering when we're going to have our first female president. I think we've had our first female president. <laughs> and of course, Charles Darwin, who, who uh, connected every living thing on the planet and had a tremendous empathy as well. Uh, and they, of course, go for their opposite, the high testosterone type. And um, so anyway, I, um, I've now been able to prove that this questionnaire that is in two of my books and all over the internet, uh, it's the first, to my knowledge, that questionnaire that started from brain circuitry and then went back to brain circuitry uh, to prove it. Uh, we put uh, two studies, uh, 34 people into the scanner, and people who were high on my dopamine scale on my questionnaire showed more activity in the, in the dopamine circuits, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think these evolved millions of years ago. Uh, I think these brain systems are with us now. I think that they can be useful in understanding not only love, uh, but uh, business as well. I'm beginning to talk about the neuroscience of leadership uh, uh, and innovation and how people learn and how they, uh, how they, how they teach, uh, etc. Fisher closes her talk with an experience she had abroad with wedding cakes. Here's her hilarious wrap-up. I went to Japan uh, with Match. Uh, they were starting a new dating service. And um, well, I spent a week talking about these personality questionnaires, uh, you know, personality styles. And then came the last night, and I said to my little handler, well, what am I doing tonight? And she said, well, we're going to have a little um, party. And um, I got to the place, it looked like the White House, mannequins with wedding dresses, uh, six foot high uh, uh, flower arrangements, uh, um, etc. And apparently everybody, four, they were talking to the first 400 uh, uh, people uh, who had signed up with Match Japan. And they'd all taken my questionnaire, and so they were all wearing a little rubber wristband, um, high yellow for the dopamine type, uh, uh, you know, um, royal blue for the high serotonin type, uh, what I call power tie red for the high testosterone type, and what I call tree hugger green for the high estrogen type. So I said, all right, uh, what do I do? And she said, well, you know, we're going to have a little icebreaker. And what we're going to do is we're going to roll out uh, four uh, bottom layers of a wedding cake that is about um, two feet by two feet. And these four broad styles of thinking and behaving are going to go to different uh, parts of the room, and they're going to decorate the wedding cake. So I thought to myself, oh my god, the nadir of my academic career. I don't know a thing about wedding cakes. So anyway, the crowd parted. There were at least 600 people in the room, and, and I saw my first wedding cake. And it was the wedding cake um, that had been decorated by the high estrogen type. Now that cake was smiling at me. It, it was saying, please let's be friends, uh, uh, um, empathetic, charming. Uh, um, so then I go over to the high serotonin cake, the crowd parts, and this is what I find. Now that's a very formal 
more traditional. It's probably who you want to have do your wedding cake. Oh, one kiwi, one cherry, one kiwi, one cherry, <laughs> kiwi, one cherry. It's an orderly, and it doesn't have the emotion of the other, it's formal. So when I go over to the high testosterone cake and the crowd parts, and this is what I sing. There's no emotion in that cake, not at all. Conservative, you know, just holding itself to, but they decorate around the cake. They thought outside the box, as the high testosterone inventive type does. So then I go to the high dopamine cake, and as I'm walking towards it, they crowd parts, and I see three men pitching fruit at the cake. <laughs> and when I get into a little closer, one guy sees me, and he takes some flowers out of a vase that has nothing to do with the decorations, and plunges them in the middle of the cake. Bottom line is, I don't believe in the golden rule, treat others as you would be treated. I believe in the platinum rule, treat others as they need to be treated, and you will win. And I thank you very much. <laughs> Helen Fisher is Chief Scientific Advisor for Match.com and a Senior Research Fellow at the Kinsey Institute. She's written six best-selling books on romantic love and sex, including her latest work, Anatomy of Love. Next week, rebuilding trust between police and communities of color. High-profile violence is highlighting the issue of police using excessive force and mistreating people of color. And now, police are the targets, with fatal shootings of officers in places like Dallas and Baton Rouge. What can be done to repair the frayed relationship between law enforcement and minority communities? And are movements like Black Lives Matter adding fuel to the fire? We'll explore the issue with a panel discussion followed by a one-on-one -on -one conversation with retired Tucson police chief, Roberto Villasenor. That's next week on Aspen Ideas To Go. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening. <laughs>